This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God, oh, excuse me, he who believes is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we open God's word this morning, let's uh, bow our heads together and go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to be refreshed by your word, to be reminded of what you have done for us and what you have provided for us, but also to be challenged with the fact that we have been called with a heavenly calling. We are given a new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Father, we are to live in a way that reflects that new identity and the fact that we are a new creature in Christ. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, help us to understand the scriptures, to apply them to our lives, and be responsive to the challenge that we find in Ephesians 4. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the topic of Christ's gifts to the church. We started this last time continuing it uh, this morning in verses 7 through 9. Now, let me just remind you a little bit about what is going on in this chapter. In Ephesians 4, Paul shifts his primary focus from everything that God has done for us, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, uh, to the implications and the applications of those blessings. As we reviewed last time, going through chapters 1, 2, and 3, we focused on the fact that it begins with the statement that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then as you work your way through those chapters, Paul is explaining many of those blessings, certainly not all. We cannot imagine all of them. They are beyond, as he says in his closing prayer, anything we could ask or think. But what we see here is that in the second half of Ephesians, he focuses on these applications of those blessings because understanding what God has done for us should change the way that we think and the way that we act. So what we see here as we look at the overall structure of Ephesians, this first section, which often is described as the doctrinal section, but it's all doctrinal. It's all teaching. Yeah, I, I prefer to think of the first section as simply thinking about uh, understanding who we are and what we now have in Christ. 
That's the focal point. And you have three chapters where Paul is explaining that. And then when we come to chapter 4, what happens is he starts talking about the, those implications and applications. And if you read chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, it ought to give you a totally new understanding of what we should be thinking about when we think about the application of Scripture. It's a much more robust view than what is typical in many of the sermons that we find today. Unfortunately, their concept of application is fairly shallow and superficial. And in fact, I'm surprised that so many people go there because what it comes out of the pulpits is just an insult to our intelligence, or at least that's what I think. Unfortunately, we're all sheep, myself included, and that's not a compliment in Scripture. Never forget that. It is a humbling reality. What I mean by application is not necessarily some idea that is dressed up in a series of Bible verses. Uh, we used to call this proof texting. And as I was going through seminary, I remember a conversation. In fact, I think that at least 60% of a, the education a seminary student gets is not in the classroom. That's why I uh, have always been resistant to this idea of virtual learning because you don't have the times where you go to lunch or you sit around in the snack room and you just knock theological ideas around. What do you think about this and what about that? And you argue and you debate from different positions. That, that, that sharpens, your, sharpens your thinking. And I remember one conversation when we were the topic, and I was sitting, sort of sitting in quietly, and the topic was dealt with the pastoral counseling course that was taught at the seminary. And uh, two of the men who taught that had written a couple of books. And one of the men in the conversation who was, I think he was in his third year, and I was just beginning, I was in my first year, and he made the comment, he said, well, all they've done is take a bunch of scripture and just uh, use it as proof text. But if you look at the scripture and the context of the scriptures that are used to allegedly support their points, you realize that very little of the Bible, very few of the Bible verses that they reference have anything to do with what they're talking about. And unfortunately, that's true in a lot of sermons. That's one reason I like to always put the Bible verses that I'm referencing up on the screen is so we can see these, the, what the verse actually says and that we can then and we can relate it as it is in its context because so often that uh, we have read, you've read theological books or doctrinal books or pamphlets, and they'll just put the references in. They don't put the verses in. There's a reason for that. You put all the verses in, it's going to take a bunch more pages, and it's going to cost more to print it. So they just put the, put the references in there. But I'll go back and I'll look at all of those verses. It happened this morning. I'm reading through a grammar and I'm looking at five references that are put there to support the point. So I looked all of them up and 
two of them really didn't support the point. It was related to the use of a word, and the word wasn't even in those two verses. So it, it's one of those things that we always have to be careful of. And in so many sermons today, that's all you get is they, they come up with an idea. They write out a, a very nice uh, sermon, a good oratory, good public speaking principles. All of those things are involved. And it seems to scratch some itch people have, so they think it's application. And then it, before they go preach it, the last thing they do is they go look up and put Bible verses on everything. That's just taking Scripture and using it as window dressing for preaching your own ideas. That is not uh, application. And I remember when I was uh, in college that I had a... Uh, a man who later became a friend, he was uh, one of the cadre in the ROTC department. He was quite skeptical about Christianity and religion. Some of you know the story. It took about 30 years, but before he went, before he died, he trusted the Lord as Savior. But he used to say, oh, you can just take the Bible and take verses any way you want them, and they will, uh, and you can support any position you want. Of course, that only happens when you take things out of context. So I've got a new coffee mug, and you can't read this, but the coffee mug says on it, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> and that is exactly what we find in so many things related to Christianity. People are often so fooled by these things, and they think that because that's where everybody else is going, and so do these. They go to these mega churches and, get, and learn all about these five ways to do this or six ways to do that. But when we get into Ephesians, what we learn is that we are to think about ourselves very differently, that application doesn't start by giving superficial guidance. Go do these ten things and apply these seven things. That's all external. What that does is it reduces Christianity to moralism. It reduces Christianity to some sort of self-help psychology. And it isn't Christianity. Back a 100 years ago, I almost had the 100th anniversary, in 1926, J. Gresham Machen, who was considered the foremost defender of biblically orthodox Christianity, at that time, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, which I had as required reading for my students in this last semester of church history. And every student who wrote on it made the comment that this is as relevant today as the day he wrote it and that every Christian should be required to read it. And, of course, every student at the seminary should be required to read it, which is one reason I'm requiring it. But in that book, he says liberalism, liberal Christianity, liberal Protestant theology is not another form of Christianity. It is another religion entirely. It is not Christianity. And the same thing then can be applied is what's in most of these so-called evangelical churches. What, they, what is coming out of the pulpits is not biblical Christianity. It's a works religion in almost every case. Because that's at least that's their methodology is to be a Christian, you have to go do these things. 
And that's what comes across. And unfortunately, that has been endemic to much of American Christianity since the early early 1800s. But when we get into Ephesians, what we learn is that application is much more profound than that. Application really starts with changing how we think. And part of that is that we are to change how we think about ourselves because we have a new identity in Christ that all believers, from the instant they trust Christ as Savior, are united together in Christ. And we are one in Christ so that uh, whatever our cultural background or ethnicity, skin color, uh, subculture, or language might be, they are not as important with other believers as our identity in Christ and that we are one in Christ. And those who make issues out of these secondary things are in rebellion against God's design and uh, God's grace. They are indeed racist or whatever the term might be, but they are not, they do not understand the grace of God. What we have learned in Ephesians is that our identity is shaped by the fact that the instant we trust Christ as Savior, we are told in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. All things is, covers a lot of territory. It covers everything. There's nothing that gets dropped out or missed by the phrase all things. And we are a new creature in Christ with a new identity. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are raised with him and seated together with him in the heavenlies. And we've studied that as we studied uh, the ascension and the session of Christ. We are legally, positionally, in terms of our identity, in Christ at the right hand of the Father, waiting for that time when the Son is going to be given the kingdom. And as a result of that, we have been given a new calling, a new vocation, and a new code of conduct. We go back to what we learned in Ephesians 4.1, where Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The six verses that introduce chapter 4 tie the book together. The first three uh, verses really look forward to what's in the rest of the epistle, going from 4, 1 through 3, actually not to 6, 9, all the way to 6, 20, picking up the last section of the book as well, teaching us how to walk as part of that is our warfare. And verses uh, 4 through 6 that talk about our identity in Christ, the unity that we have in Christ, that looks back to what we all have in common in the first three verses. So Paul is drawing a conclusion from the first three verses, and he identifies himself as the prisoner of the Lord. And then he says, I beseech you, our... um, He is saying, I call upon you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And as we studied that and we looked at this terminology, what he is saying is that that to walk worthy means to live your Christian life. 
walking is a metaphor for the for your life, how you live, and how we live should reflect how we think. It's not just some superficial morality. It is something that is that is deep in our soul as we come to understand uh, what the Word of God says and who we are and what Christ has done for us. And that word for walking worthy means in a manner that is uh, suitable to our new position, the calling. And that's a difficult thing to understand. And so we looked at that noun, the calling, and it refers to the new position uh, of status or honor and responsibility that God has entrusted to his saints. It is a high position. It is an honored position that we are have been called. And it's the same for all the saints, despite the diversity of spiritual gifts that they are given. And so this position, this calling, is what we are to aspire to. It is what we are to live up to. And the development of that, I went to 1 Corinthians 7.20, where uh, Paul writes, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called, where it has the idea of a vocation or a uh, uh, what we would call it a trade or a business. And Dave Lowry in his uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians in the Bible Knowledge Commentary states, likewise, a Christian's vocational situation is a matter of little consequence. If status can be changed, well and good. If not, it's not a matter of worry. What matters is that every Christian should realize he is Christ's slave and needs to render obedience to him. That is a profound thought. That is what underlies the basis for Paul's instruction on the Christian life in Romans chapter 6, that we were slaves to sin, but now that we have been saved and we have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the slave, uh, the sin nature is no longer our master, and we are to be slaves to righteousness. And then he challenges them. He says, why are you continuing to act like you're a slave to your sin nature? And that's a question that we all face all the time. Why do we continue to act like we're not saved and just uh, choose to enslave ourselves to our sin nature? Then we came to Ephesians 4, 7, and this section begins to explain why or how we are to learn to walk worthy. When you get into Ephesians 4 a little later, there are other commands to how we should walk that help explain what that walk is all about. But when you get to verse 7 and go from verse 7 down to verse 16, that section is talking about how we learn what is the way God has provided for us to learn how to walk worthy. And it begins by understanding these gifts that Christ has given to us. So the verse begins in verse 7 by saying, but to each one of us individually, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, it's real common for us to look at this and to think in terms of 
that this is the grace of salvation, when in fact this is really talking about uh, this, uh, the spiritual gifts that are given. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, before I go on to look at that and explain that, I want us to look a little further down in the chapter because we need to understand where we're headed. I think a lot of times when I read a book, I'll go to the conclusion and read it so I know where the author's headed. It doesn't matter if it's a 200-page book or a 500-page book. In the conclusion, he should tell us why he brought, what, he, what this was all about. And so a lot of times it's helpful when we look at a big section of Scripture, especially a long paragraph like this one, that we understand where he's taking us. And so this is important. Look at verse 13. He describes the gifts in 10, 11, and 12. 10 and 11 defining the gifts, 12 their purpose. But 13, with that word till or until, gives us the purpose, the destination that we're headed to. This is why we are to go to church. This is why we're to be involved in a congregation, whether physically or virtually. I know that today we live in a world where there are so many people living in places where there's not good Bible teaching that they... Uh, they have to go to the Internet to get solid, solid spiritual food. And so we come to verse 13, and these gifts are given for a purpose, defined in verse 12 as equipping the saints for the work of ministry and edifying the body of Christ. But then the goal is stated in verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we see a couple of things here. First of all, that the goal is related to spiritual maturity, to a mature man. You have perfect in your uh, New King James or King James, but that word is teleos in the Greek, which has to do with uh, not with flawless perfection, but with maturity, reaching the end. Uh, that, that God has for us, which is spiritual maturity. And so we see that spiritual maturity is, is found uh, as a result of the unity of the faith. Now, that is not the unity of having a common act of faith, but a common content of faith. When we look back in verse 5 of chapter 4, we're told there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That one faith is the, the orthodox understanding of God's word. It's not being caught up in these kinds of distractions that come along in various sects and cults, but to focus on the biblical truth that is there. It's a unity of sound doctrine. And it is, secondly, a knowledge of who Christ is. It, it is uh, the result of uh, the unity of the faith or of sound doctrine and of the knowledge. It's epinosis. It's a robust knowledge of the Son of God. The second thing we observe is that 
that unity of the faith and that robust knowledge of Christ are the stepping stones to spiritual maturity. You can't be spiritually mature unless you have a comprehension of that which makes sound doctrine and understand uh, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't walk worthy if we don't know our Bible uh, and we don't understand the basic truths of the faith. And if we don't develop an intimate knowledge and intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that understanding sound doctrine and developing an intimate relationship with the Son are not optional if you're going to grow anywhere. And the only way you're going to learn that based on the spiritual gifts or the gifted men that are given in verses 10 and 11 is to be under the ministry of pastor, teachers, and evangelists who are going to teach and train you. Verse 14 says that this is the purpose stated. The, the goal was maturity. The purpose is that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. It is sad but true that about probably at least 99% of Christians are happy having dirty diapers and staying that way. They don't want to learn anything about being cleansed. That's 1 John 1, 9. They don't want to learn anything about spiritual growth and desiring the unadulterated milk, milk of the word. And Paul says that, no, we have to learn under these ministries, these gifted people, so that we're no longer children, we're no longer immature. And that is characterized by being tossed to and fro and carried, around, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Third, so our third point that we observe here is that the goal is to get out of diapers and childhood, which is characterized by doctrinal insecurity, ignorance, and instability. And that's where so many churches are today. Verse 15 says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Now, positively, this is characterized by speaking the truth from a motivation and foundation of biblical love. The problem there is most people don't understand what biblical love is. We live in a world that is so self-focused, self-absorbed, that their concept of love is often shaped by what's good for me. And unfortunately, they misapply this phrase, speaking the truth in love, and they're speaking the truth out of arrogance. Uh, They're speaking the truth out of um, the idea of it's my job to straighten other people out. And they're motivated also by guilt that I need to get something off of my chest, so I'm going to have your mental attitude messed up as much as mine is by telling you about my sins. That's not speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love also means not saying things that we sometimes think we ought to say. So we are to speak the truth in love with the result that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head. Now, that term head indicates authority, 
And so this growth is related to understanding the authority of Christ in our life. So the goal of growth is our my fifth point is that the goal of growth is to increase our submission to the leadership of Christ who is our authority. And then we'll come to verse 16 that says, from whom the whole body, that is from Christ, the whole body, joined and knit together, that's all believers at their mutual ministry to one another in terms of spiritual gifts, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So as my sixth observation, it's when those in the body of Christ work in tandem under the authority of Christ and under the authority of his word that we grow and the body edifies itself in love. And the last point is this role of love has to be thoroughly understood. Otherwise, we really pervert it. And the problem is in our American culture, love has been totally perverted into the sham of superficial uh, sentimentality, and it is dominated by the cult of selfism that rules our culture for the last 75 years. So we need to walk through this. That's where we're headed, but we have to understand the basis. So that's why Paul starts by saying to each one of us individually, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this grace that is given he uses the word charis, but in many places the word charis has the same idea as it's the full word charisma, which is spiritual, uh, which is also used for a spiritual gift. And this is what Paul says, for example, in Ephesians 3.2, if indeed you have heard of the administration of the grace of God, which was given to me. So that's his spiritual gift, apostleship, and his being appointed to be an apostle. In Ephesians 3, 7, he also speaks of this, as of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, which was given to me. And so this grace of God is a spiritual gift, his spiritual gift of being an apostle. And he says it again in verse 8, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. What he means by this grace is this gift of the grace of God, which was given to me, which is his uh, apostolic uh, office and his apostolic gift. We have the same thing used in other passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is one we will relate to when we get down into these gifted people in verses 10 and 11. Uh, because that is one of the main central chapters on uh, spiritual gifts. We've got, for, for, it's real easy to remember, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Both of those chapters are the spiritual gift chapters. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And there it is talking about that, that grace, gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. The role of the Holy Spirit in relation to the giving of these gifts is under the authority of Jesus Christ, which is what we see in our passage in uh, Ephesians 4, 7. 
It is Christ's gift. That is a position of his, it comes from Christ. It's a genitive of source. And it is the, uh, the standard by which these gifts are given. He uh, gives them out according to his will. And then that is distributed by means of God, the Holy Spirit, according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. In Romans 12, 3, Paul wrote, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Another use of the word grace in relation to a spirit, uh, spiritual gift. Now, he also says in this verse, to each one of us, the us now refers to who? We studied this. Jew and Gentile united together in one body in Christ. So according to um, the context here, we see the following verses. Well, I'm just leaving out the, the um, parenthesis. Starting in verse 7, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And that's the, the uh, paraphrase that Paul used from Psalm 68, 18. And then he's going to insert this period in uh, these verses that are in the middle. And I want to turn our attention to those two verses this morning. Um, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now what I want to point out here is that uh, there's some misunderstanding and there's been a historic misinterpretation of this passage. It is true that if we look at 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, that during the time Christ was in the grave, then the body was in the grave between the crucifixion and the resurrection, that he, uh, 1 Peter three nineteen says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through the water. Now, I've taught through that verse. I'm not going to go back over it, but the point of that verse is that during that time, Christ went to uh, Sheol and he proclaimed to the spirits, which are the uh, fallen angels guilty of the sin in Genesis 6, and proclaimed his uh, victory at the cross. That is not what Ephesians uh, 4 is talking about. It has The context of Ephesians 4 doesn't relate to anything that's there. And so this is, this is just an erroneous uh, interpretation. It's, it's what I call Rorschach exegesis. There's a lot of examples of that through, through the history of the church. 
everyone knows what a Rorschach test is. That's the psychological test where you have the ink blots and you look at the ink blots and then whatever you first think that it looks like, that's what you say. And that's what happens in a lot of exegesis. Oh, well, this phrase is used here, so that means X or Y. And it's just the first thing that comes into somebody's mind because it uses similar language. And that happens a tremendous amount. And it's a failure to really analyze context to see what is, what is being said here. And so Paul inserts this parenthetical statement for the purpose of emphasizing, uh, reminding us again that we are in Christ and we have uh, ascended with him to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's the second verse. But he draws out an implication of the phrase he ascended. If he ascended, it, that, that implies something. That implies that because he is God, he came from heaven, and that if he ascended to heaven, if he is eternally from heaven, then he must have descended first. That's what he's talking about. The implication is the incarnation. He's talking about Christ as the one who descended from heaven to the earth. He is not talking about going into the inward parts of the earth. But as I say that, I know somebody is uh, looking at this phrase that is at the end of the verse, the lower parts of the earth. Now, it may surprise you to know that the English word of can mean just about anything. It is not a term of precision. It simply reflects that in the original there is a genitival construction. And there are a number of ways in which a genitive can be used. And often it is the simple way to express it is simply with the English word of. Of can indicate possession. Of can indicate a number of other things. In fact, one source said that there were over 30 nuances to the English word of. That's not very precise, is it? It's hard enough sometimes when you're just working through the Greek and you have a genitive and you have to work through about 20 different senses, but usually uh, they can be narrowed down pretty, uh, pretty rapidly. The traditional way that, uh, that this was often handled was what's called a partitive genitive, uh, that he's going into the par a part of the earth which is not at all contextual or necessary, that, in fact, it is much more likely that this is what is called an appositional genitive or genitive of apposition. What it is doing is it is defining, in a more precise way, the head noun. So in here, the head noun is that is the, the lower part, namely the earth. Or another way you can translate is uh, which is the earth. For example, there are a number of ways in which this is done. Uh, one is, for, for example, the land of Egypt. Uh, that is not the land which is in Egypt. That is the land, comma, which is Egypt. So the, in that sense, it, the category is of an example, the land which is Egypt. 
A second way is the phrase, the sign of circumcision. This is uh, uh, because of, of a lack of knowledge, uh, an ambiguous situation. It should be understood as the sign which is circumcision. Or a third category is one where you have a metaphor such as the breastplate of righteousness, and it's the breastplate which consists in righteousness or the breastplate which is righteousness. There are a number of different uh, passages where we have these kinds of examples. For example, in Luke 22.1, you have the translation, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You could also use the Feast of Passover. But what you're talking about, the Feast, which is Unleavened Bread, the Feast, which is Passover. Another example is in John 2.21, uh, when Christ is talking about, you know, if you strike down this body, uh, it will be raised on the third day. Uh, he, the, John then writes, but he was speaking of the temple, which is his body. So the body is explaining more precisely the, the head word, which is temple. Romans 4.11, the sign which is circumcision. Second Peter 2.6 turning to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what that is saying, the cities, that is, or the cities which are Sodom and Gomorrah. Revelation 1, 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. What are the words? The words, that is, the prophecy. It's appositional. It is explaining further another noun. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, which is the church. In the usual translation, he's the head of the body of the church. So which is explains what a little more, in a little more detail, what that means. So of the earth is taken to be a, an appositional uh, genitive. This is very, very common and is attested to by a number of, of uh, Greek scholars. And you find it here, the way it would be translated here, he descended into the lower parts, that is the earth, or which is the earth. It is, the earth is explaining what the lower parts is. He doesn't descend into uh, the inner parts of the earth, but the lower parts. So this establishes the fact that he that it is the in, incarnation and that in the incarnation he descended from heaven to the earth and then he will ascend uh, far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now what does that mean that he fills all things? This is the potential of his future ministry that he will fill all things, and that begins with the giving of these gifts and, the, and in order to teach and to uh, train believers to walk worthy of the calling with which they have been called. So next week we'll come back and begin to look at these uh, four spiritual gifts. There's not five here. There are four spiritual gifts and we'll cover those and their significance and necessity for 
becoming mature and being edified in the body of Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the way in which it teaches us, instructs us, challenges us, and enables us to recognize the focal point of our life is to serve you, not to serve ourselves. The purpose of our life is to glorify you. The purpose of our life is to walk worthy of this new high position to which we have been called, this great honor, this this uh, uh, great and magnificent position that we have in Christ, that we are called to be an example and a testimony, and that in order to do that, we have to learn your word. We have to take it in. We have to let it transform the way we think, which in turn will transform the way we live. Father, we pray that anyone who is here this morning or anyone who is listening online, that they might understand that what we have been talking about pertains to our spiritual growth after salvation, but that salvation itself is separate. It is a distinct teaching. The gospel is about getting saved, getting that new life. What we've been talking about is how to live the new life. But to get the new life is simple. It is simply to accept or to trust or to believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and that by him you have everlasting life, by faith alone in Christ alone. And that this doesn't require saying some prayer, doesn't require some overt activity such as uh, raising your hand, walking an aisle, any of the other things that have been added by uh, Christians over the years. It is simply an internal intellectual act where you recognize that this is true. It's true for you, that Christ died for you, and you believe that. And so that is all that is necessary to have everlasting life. It is a free gift. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today. In Christ's name, amen.